This is episode 89 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2014 Annual Enrichment Conference with Jared Wilson. This is session two from Tuesday morning titled The Supernaturality of Christian Ministry. Good morning. Uh, turn once again, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We are looking at verses 4 through 6. And our aim this morning will be to see what uh, how Paul is developing. Am, am I causing that? Do you, do you hear that? Is there anything I can do? Just keep talking. Keep going. Okay. Uh, Paul is developing the, um, the argument of the gospel. And as he develops this argument, we see we see um, um, the establishment of the gospel. Uh, he's made this radical claim of the gospel that Christ has written on our hearts by the Spirit. And this is where he turns now, beginning in verse 4. He's going to point us um, in the direction um, which we must face in order to credit the Spirit with all of the work that is being accomplished. There's not a drop, there's not a, um, a thimbleful of our own effort or our own qualifications, anything that we can muster up that um, affects what the Spirit is doing in us and through us. It, it is all, even our own effort is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So this is where he goes. Uh, let's begin reading in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray now. We're going to ask the Father to send the Spirit, help us to uh, understand this text, and apply it to our lives. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would give us a vision of your Son uh, through the working, through the powerful ministry of your Spirit in this time. We believe that your word does not return void, and so we ask that it would do what it is designed to do, that your spirit would carry it into our hearts, that it would flourish, that it would find purchase there, that it would bloom into um, new levels of adoration of your son, um, new uh, vibrancy of affections uh, for you, uh, a greater attentiveness tuned into you. Father, we uh, must leave this place uh, throwing our own idols into the ditch. I pray that you would convict us, you would reveal that to us, uh, and help us to be good repenters, all by the power of your Spirit, who brings the grace of Christ to us. It's in your Son's great name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want you to, you know, to go back now, pastors, especially to those Monday mornings that we talked about um, last night. Re remember what it feels like, what uh, the situation is like, the discouragement, the exhaustion, the stress the frustration of the fear that someone may call or that certain email may come, the conflict, the, um, that sort of um, difficult conversation that you're putting off. If you're like me, you, you, know, you want to do the easy things first and you try to put off the conflict as, as long as you possibly can. But you know conversations need to be had. You know people need to be talked to. Um, and so all of this is sort of hanging over you. It is very easy to forget in those moments, those moments of weakness and discouragement and disillusionment 
that Christianity is essentially supernatural. That what we are dealing with, not just in Christian ministry, but Christianity itself, the reality of Christianity is that it is spiritual, capital S spiritual, not the sort of quasi new agey kind of religious spiritual, but that it deals with the spiritual world, that the Holy Spirit is what births Christianity in our hearts, that makes us Christians. So you may have decided to follow Jesus, you have turned your back on the world and looked towards the cross, but even that decision, that movement is birthed and empowered and energized by the Holy Spirit of God. Christianity is supernatural, and that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, the supernaturality of Christian ministry. We are not dealing with a life system, a religious code, a set of tips or instructions for more successful living, modified behavior. Christianity is about the raising of the dead. And when it gets down to it, what Christianity is dealing with is dead things coming to life. Would anybody, after receiving the latest gobbledygook from Tony Robbins or Oprah Winfrey, write a song that said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. We are not saved, as Donald Whitney says, by sola bootstrapper. <laughs> we are saved, as we say, by grace alone. It is received through faith alone. It is not the result of our works so that none of us should be able to boast about our having achieved Christianity or chosen Christianity or been smart enough to know that Christianity was preferable to all of the other systems. Christianity comes from the Lord. Ever and always it comes from the God of the universe. The message of the gospel is an announcement itself about what God has done in Christ. So that we preach not ourselves. We preach Christ crucified. We preach his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection. The message, the very essence, the announcement that we are making, the good tidings, is something God did. There's not a bit of our own work or our own effort in the message of the gospel. The gospel is not made more powerful by a dynamic preacher or a rocking worship band. Now those things might adorn the gospel in an excellent way, but the gospel cannot be improved. The poorest, impoverished, least dynamic, most boring preacher that you can imagine. Maybe right now you're being nudged, I don't know. cannot preach a less powerful gospel than the most dynamic preacher if they're preaching the true gospel. So the message of what Christ has done is a power all unto itself. The gospel that saved us ought to be a reminder in itself that for all of the earthiness, for all of the natural means, for the incarnation itself, for all of the restoration of creation that God is working, Christianity is sourced in God in heaven. It is supernatural. One of our church's most vivid examples of the supernaturality of Christianity is um, my friend Stephen. I, I met Stephen on his first Sunday in our church. Um, it's not, you know, our church is small enough um, where I, I notice when there are new people, um, but not so small that I get to meet every person um, on their first Sunday visiting. But on this particular Sunday, uh, I saw Stephen. 
Uh, I met him out in the foyer of our church, and as I went to introduce myself to him, I learned that Stephen, um, not only was it his first Sunday in our church, it was his first Sunday in any church in 44 years. So he had grown up Roman Catholic, and when he was 18 years old, he, you know, he left home and he just turned his back on everything religious and never entered a church building. But in the last you know, few years of his life, this you know, 60-something-year-old man um, was sort of dealing with this sort of nagging stuff he had heard as a kid and began to wrestle with some spiritual things. And he has uh, a brother out in California who's a believer and had been praying for him and you know, urging, you know, sending him literature and telling him who to listen to on the radio. And so Stephen was listening to radio preaching and all of that sort of thing, but knew he probably uh, ought to go back to church. Well, to tell you about Stephen, I have to tell you about another man named Bruce. And Bruce is not a believer. Um, uh, um, Bruce is um, a former Jehovah's Witness. Um, he's still sort of, uh, he's, not, he's in flux theologically, um, he, but he began attending our church about three years ago. Um, left his uh, kingdom hall, you know, turned his back on, on, on Jehovah's Witnesses, um, which sort of estranged him from his family even. Um, and so he's not a Christian, you know, we still, the, the conversations he and I have, I mean, always center on the Trinity, on the deity of Christ, that sort of thing. He asks some really off-the-wall questions in the adult Bible study on Sunday morning, some, um, some things that some of our people go, wow, I've never heard that before. And so, you know, I get to lovingly correct some heresy, and, 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 and my people get to watch um, us do that. But Bruce loves our church, he loves our people, and he likes the Bible, and he likes <laughs> preaching from the Bible, and... Um, he's conservative politically, and so he's found some, you know, some comrades in arms there in our church and that sort of thing. Um, so he's been coming um, on Sunday morning, and um, one day uh, Bruce um, hired Stephen um, to work on his property. He was having some trees cut down, so he was sort of a handyman, journeyman carpenter, and um, forestry guy, and all that sort of thing. So as they're working out on the property, Stephen starts talking to Bruce about, you know, his spiritual journey and that sort of thing, and. Um, you know, his brother says that he should be back in church, and so he's thinking about going back to church. And so Bruce says, well, you should come to this church that I'm going to. So that Sunday morning, Stephen showed up, and he's not missed, that was two years ago, he's not missed a Sunday in two years. I mean, that's a better track record than me, even. <laughs> he's at every men's discipleship group. Um, he attends a community group. He's at every meeting of his community group. I baptized him last summer after his profession of faith. Now, Stephen is a reminder to, to me that the Holy Spirit is what makes Christianity happen. Right? Like, none of us, if we were sitting around a boardroom, like I didn't sit down with my elders and think, you know who is an untapped resource for evangelism? <laughs> the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> We could somehow leverage the watchtower. <laughs> Even if we had had the, the idiocy to come up with such a plan, it would not have worked. It could not have gone off the way that it did. Only the Holy Spirit could have done what was done in Stephen's life. It is a testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit's power and working. Let us never forget that Christianity is supernatural. So what we see here in this text, first of all, is this. That the gospel message itself is supernatural. The gospel message is supernatural. The confidence that we have toward God, Paul talks about, is through Christ. It's not through ourselves. It's not through our religious effort. It's not through our own 
pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not from our working our fingers to the bone. It's not putting our nose to the spiritual grindstone. It is, verse 4, through Christ. The life we have is, in verse 6, not from the letter, but from the Spirit. God is at work in the gospel. It comes from Him. It is empowered by Him. And it works through Him. Even in spite of our best efforts, the Lord is still working in His Spirit on the surface of the deeps of men's souls to bring people to Him in spite of people working against Him. So this past Sunday, I had the privilege of preaching at a church in Vancouver, Washington. And I, I met a man there who was saying, you know, he, uh, in his younger days, he went through these hippie communes and you know, experienced some of the New Age religion and spirituality that was going there. And the thing that made Jesus attractive, he said, in that environment was how often they wanted to normalize Jesus. Um, the illustration he used or the picture he used was, I could tell they were wanting to take Jesus down and put him, uh, you know, on the same level as all of these others. And their desire to do that made him seem distinct to me. The effort to obscure Jesus made Jesus more appealing. Now, that's a spiritual thing that is taking place. It reminded me of my friend Jeff, a member of our church, who in his early days, it was a you know, similar deal. He was uh, one of the hippies who moved into Vermont to sort of live off the land and be a part of this sort of commune. And he read all sorts of spiritual literature, Eastern spirituality and that sort of thing. And he remembers reading a book. You can still get it on Amazon, although I'm not recommending it to you. But it's called Be Here Now. And maybe some of you older folks remember Be Here Now. It's kind of a popular New Age spirituality book in the um, 60s and 70s by a fellow, I mean, he has a real name, but he went by Ram Das, just to give you a picture of what this book might be like. He said, I'm reading Be Here Now by Ram Das, and it's just this gumbo of all of these spiritualities, he, you know, just everything is in there, Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and Christianity, like it's all mixed together to find the truth in, in everything, the universal religion or whatever it is. And he says, as I'm reading this book, and there's Bible verses in it because they're, you know, they're trying to pull from the Bible as well, I'm reading this book and for some reason the Bible verses are like standing off the page. <laughs> Out of all of the religious stuff in it, it was the scripture that was sort of hitting me as different. It just it, it didn't seem the same. As much as they wanted to make it seem like you know all you know roads lead to the same place and that sort of thing, the Bible was jumping off the page at me, and I thought there's something different about this than there is about all the other stuff that they're saying is the same, which made him seek out a church. And in the church service, the preacher was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount which somehow struck his heart. And at the end of the service, there was a gospel invitation. And he received Christ Jesus. You see, we would not hand out Be Here Now as a gospel track. And you shouldn't. I'm not saying you should. I'm only trying to show you that the Word of God is living and active. And even those who are trying to misuse it, will get used by it if the Holy Spirit wills. And so preaching is itself a supernatural act. When you preach the gospel, and you will do it in a, a variety of ways, in a variety of situations, regardless of the situation or the context, you will want to make sure that the central idea of your ministry is the gospel of Jesus Christ, because only the gospel is power. Romans 1.16, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In Ephesians 3, 7, Paul says the gospel was given to him by God's power. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, he says the gospel is accompanied with power. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18, he says the message of the gospel is the power of God. And in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15, as he's reminding the brothers of the gospel that he preached, he says it's of first importance. This is the most important thing. And how he describes what the gospel does is very telling, very instructive to us. He says, you received it, okay, past tense, right? You might have walked an aisle or whatever you did. You received the gospel, but it's the gospel in which you are presently standing. So there's past tense you received, there's present tense you are standing, and it is by the gospel by which you are being saved. Future tense. We should never graduate from the gospel. In the church tradition that I grew up in, or at least in the particular churches that I grew up in, the gospel is something for lost people. And you accept Christ, and you get saved by the gospel, and then you move on to other things. So, you know, Christianity 201, or whatever it is. Deeper things. But there's nothing more deep than the gospel. As Tim Keller says, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. <laughs> The good news of Jesus Christ is power outside of ourselves. It's in spite of ourselves. It is sourced in the Holy Spirit who is obliged and committed to furthering the glory of Jesus Christ through the proclamation of his life, death, and resurrection. The gospel is power. It is capital S spiritual. It's where the supernaturality is. Not in the law. You can preach the law from the Bible all day, but you will not be preaching the power that saves people if you do. You must bring it back to the gospel. One of my um, favorite passages of scripture is Ezekiel chapter 37, famous, the Valley of Dry Bones. Comes to mind for me, we um, live and minister in New England, and, um, where we are sort of in, in rural Vermont, and in many places in New England there are many uh, of these white steeple church buildings that are just either empty or on their way to emptying out. And they sort of remind us, like the very dry bones is what it reminds me of. And as I drive around and look at some of these places, some of them are like antique stores now, and, and you know, community centers or art galleries, or they're just three or four people in there desperately trying to hang on, hoping that God will do something. And many of the places even that are full, the gospel is not being preached. There's sort of a Unitarian or social gospel taking place in those places. And I hear what Ezekiel heard in contemplating the, the very dry bones. Son of man, can, this, can these bones live? Can these bones live? And I don't want to say what Ezekiel didn't say. Ezekiel could have said, well, of course, Lord. I have all the right literature. I've gone to all the right conferences. I have all the right methods. Of course they can live. Now Ezekiel says, Oh Lord, only you know. You know if they'll live or not. And when the Lord gives the instructions to Ezekiel about the dry bones, he does not say, chastise the bones. Crack a whip over the bones. Give the bones a pep talk. He says, prophesy over the bones. Say to the bones, hear the word of the Lord. Which reminds me of Jesus at the mouth of Lazarus' tomb. Who didn't throw out a set of instructions. 
Lazarus, if you're interested, this is what you need to do. Put one foot in front of the other. Mind you don't stumble. No, he just issued the command. Come forth. And Lazarus obeyed. The dead guy came to life. The message, Paul says in Colossians, is going into the world. It is bearing fruit and growing. It is almost as if the gospel is a force all into itself. Because it is. We don't give the gospel power. The gospel gives us power. And when people get saved, it's not because we have the best articulation. It's because the gospel is the only means by which people are saved. The gospel does the work. If you want your people to be trained in righteousness, right? You want them to be good repenters. You want them to pursue holiness. What pastor doesn't want that? Titus 2.11 says it is grace that does that. It's grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. If you want your church to become more Christ-like when they're in suffering and when they're not suffering, you want them to be more conformed to the image of Christ. Right here in our very chapter, verse 18 says it's by beholding Jesus that we are transformed. If you want them to become imitators of Christ, disciples in the kingdom, 1 Thessalonians 1.6 says this happens by receiving the word in the midst of much affliction. The Holy Spirit working through the good news is the only power that we have. Now the frustrating thing about the Holy Spirit is that you cannot control him. There was a couple who was coming to our church for a while. The husband was a believer, the wife was not, and he was really hoping and hearing the gospel at our church that his wife would come to salvation, and hearing the gospel at home, she would come to salvation. We prayed, he and I prayed often that his wife would receive Christ. Eventually they moved away to another, another town in New York where he was pursuing his education, and they got into a good gospel preaching church there. And one day I received an email from him saying, good news, my wife has accepted Christ Jesus. She's made a profession of faith and I get to baptize her. I confess, brothers, my first impulse was, well, why didn't she get saved here? <laughs> what do they have that we don't have? <laughs> I rejoice that God brought another child home, no matter who got to, you know, put the notch on their belt. About three years ago, there was a married couple, each dying, each on their deathbeds. He was in a hospital, she was in a nursing home. She was dying of cancer, he was dying of emphysema. And I went and shared the gospel with both of them, sat by their bedside told them about Jesus Christ and what he had done and for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. And if they would put their faith in him, they could be saved. Well, the woman accepted Christ, as far as I can tell, but the man did not. Sort of went out the same way he lived his life, shaking his fist at God. And I had asked myself, what? Well, I mean, you're, you would think if there's any moment where you're even inclined to maybe, you know, take a chance to hedge your bets, right? It would be on your deathbed. But no, he wasn't interested. So what made the difference there? 
Was she smarter than him? Was she better than him? Was she, you know, I, I don't know all of those. Well, what I do know is this. Those who come to Christ come to Christ through Christ by the power of the Spirit. And I shared the exact same gospel with both of them. And yet it found purchase in one soul and not in the other. And so the Holy Spirit says, I'm not a formula. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't wear your wristwatch. This is why it's ridiculous to um, schedule revival. <laughs> revival next week. I, I don't, don't put that on your sign because when you do, you're ensuring that it won't happen. That's what I think. Like the rapture dating. Like, don't, don't announce a date. Now he's not going to come back on the day. <laughs> he might have it. He just will shut up. You, you can't schedule revival. Or as my friend Ray Ortland says, speaking on Acts chapter 2, verse 43, awe came upon every soul. He says, that's not something you can put in your worship bulletin. 10 a.m. worship, 10.30, awe comes down. It doesn't work like that. The Spirit moves as He wills. The frustrating thing about the Holy Spirit is that you cannot control Him. But the wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit is that you cannot control Him. There is no heart too hard. There's no soul that is too cold. There's no situation that is so bleak. There is no spirit too imprisoned, no life too dead for the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is still roaming the earth, seeking whom he may revive. Wherever the gospel is going forth, the Spirit is doing whatever God pleases. I'm God, he says. I'll harden whom I want to harden. I will have mercy on them. I want to have mercy. The gospel message is supernatural. Secondly, gospel ministry is supernatural. Gospel ministry is supernatural. Verse 5 reminds us we are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. This, this work, this ministry is not something that we can gin up. We can put on a big show, but when lives are changed, it is not by a big show. It's by the Spirit showing a vision of Christ. And that we get used along those means of, I mean, how can someone hear if there is no one to preach? That we are used by God to proclaim this powerful gospel does not mean that transformation comes from us. It is not from ourselves. It comes from God. The message, the methods, the means all have to come from the Holy Spirit or we're completely sunk. We're just spinning our wheels, putting on a religious cavalcade of whatever you call it. Attracting crowds, giving people life steps, life skills. But we are not changing hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So this means at the very minimum, our ministry, like our Christian life in general, ought to be saturated in prayer. Saturated in prayer. I figured out once upon a time why I don't pray more often. And it was because I thought I was sufficient in and of myself to claim things as coming from me. The reason that I don't pray more often is because I don't feel helpless enough. Because that's what prayer essentially is. It's acknowledged helplessness. You are saying to God, I need you. You need to intervene here. We need your working. We need your power. We need your help. I can't do this. We can't do this. 
We need you. We need you to give us wisdom. We need you to give us instructions. We need you to give us conviction. We need you to give us repentance. We need you to save souls. We need you to give us fruit to grow things in our ministry and in our lives. There are many times, and some of you who do counseling probably have, have no, undoubtedly encountered this, where someone is unfurling a grand history of abuse, of trauma, of, of such woundedness that it, it is um, just overwhelming. And all of the little words of advice, all of the inspirational things that sound so great on Twitter and Facebook, or when you write them in books, they come to the tip of my tongue and my brain says, don't say that. That does not do justice to what they just shared with you. That, that wound is too deep to throw some little two cents out. But my flesh is going to say, I need to say something. I'm a religious expert here. I mean, they're sharing the depth of their pain. They're sharing the depth of their hurt with me. And I need to be able to say something. And I've sort of learned, really, do I? I mean, do I have to say something? And so what I've learned to do is, is say... Let's pray. I don't know what to say to that. I don't know what that feels like. I'm not going to pretend like I do. I've, I've been hurt before, but, but, but not like that. And so rather than try to give you some advice, why don't we just ask God to help us? And so I'll ask the Lord to help me to know when to say things and what to say when I say them and when not to say things. One of the most difficult times in um, our short ministry in Vermont was the day we got a call that um, one of our, our church members' sons had died of a drug overdose. She was actually at the, um, they're considered a crime scene, she was at the crime scene calling me on her cell phone in, in the moment. So I was there with her as the police are taking his body. I went with her to the hospital. I, I thought this was just a thing in the movies. I didn't know that he actually had to identify the body, go and identify a body. And so as she waited in the hospital waiting room to go in to identify her son who had died, I sat there next to her and I held her hand. And my brain saying, say something. You're her pastor. You should think of something to say. And I didn't know what to say. So I just was praying, God, help us, help us, help her. Give her such good comfort in this moment. We don't know what to say. So we just pray. We ask for help. Like Jesus did in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, we see in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. I think the reason that I don't pray, I know the reason that I don't pray is because I think essentially I got this. But I really don't. And so I think... Those of us, especially who are pastors, we need to cultivate a good sense of ministerial incompetence. Do whatever we can to develop a healthy sense of inadequacy. We are not doing the Lord's work with our wisdom and our power, but with His. And this means frequently, constantly, unceasingly crying out to God. What are we doing in our lives and ministries and churches going about in our own power, under our own authority, using up our own strength for our own glory. Let's not build the case 
that was established, this may be apocryphal, but by the Korean pastor who came to visit the States. And as he was leaving, they said, well, what do you think about the church in America? And he said, it's amazing what the church in the United States can do without the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I don't want that said of me or my church. There are such powerful things the Spirit has done for our church that we could never do, even if we tried. Even if we had a plan, a strategy, a well-ordered system, a vision statement, and a mission statement, and a purpose statement, and a value statement, all put together, the Lord scoffs at it. I'm not saying you shouldn't have that, but the Lord looks at that and goes, you think I need that? You need that to think straight, but I don't need that. We don't worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ingenuity. The men of God in the scriptures walked in the power of the Spirit because they knew they needed the Lord God to live. They had nothing apart from God of their own to offer. The best that we can muster up is symbolic, but when the Lord moves through men, He moves in great power to transform. We can do nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. We, we couldn't get up this morning if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. We could not take our next breath apart from the Holy Spirit. And if our next breath is our last breath, we could not enter into the gates of paradise without the Holy Spirit. It is in Him, Paul says to the men in the Areopagus, that we live and move and have our being. Which means if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we do not live, we do not move, we do not be. When some of John the Baptist's disciples are arguing with some Jews about purification in John chapter 3, John the Baptist himself says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him. So Paul says to the church at Colossae, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So this ought to make us despair of ourselves and trust unreservedly in God. And the result is this. We will have a boldness we, we wouldn't have if Christianity were simply about spiritual mathematics. If the spirit who is God is active and real and leading us into all truth, we can have real confidence. If I am united to Christ, I am as secure as Christ is. How secure do you think Christ is? So the freedom that comes from that reality, the doctrinal reality of union with Christ, is extraordinarily empowering. So liberating. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. So the gospel message and the gospel ministry are supernatural. Thirdly and finally, gospel ministers are supernatural. Gospel ministers are supernatural. No, you're, you're not divine. I'm not saying that you're little gods. But like every true Christian, you are indwelled, empowered, and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 6, he made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. He made us this way. You thought it was the seminary degree. You thought it was the ordination committee or the pastor search team. And all of those means and more simply recognize in you and agree with what God has made out of you. The mandate that God has given you, the equipping and commissioning you have to minister within the covenant of grace comes from the justifying God. The... Um, the the week, the moment when I believed that I was called into vocational ministry, I was in junior high and I was at a youth camp. And I had no thought, no previous thought. I don't come from a ministry family. I was raised in church, but um, my dad, or I, I, 
I didn't have any ministerial role models to look up to. It wasn't expected of me. I certainly didn't want it for myself at that time. I think um, my career aspiration was to write for DC Comics. I wanted to write Batman comic books. And at youth camp, we were encouraged to get up every morning and you know have morning devotionals and that sort of thing. It wasn't required because I didn't want to be legalistic, but it was encouraged, strongly encouraged that you do this. And one morning at Camp Zephyr, right outside Corpus Christi, Texas, I found myself in Exodus 3. And I was reading about God's call of Moses. And it was um, pretty instrumental for me, not only because I had a stutter from about first grade, um, all the way actually into college. So at the time, I was a pretty heavy stutter. I didn't like to be called on to read in class or anything like that because I thought people would think I was stupid. Or, um, I just it was very, I was very timid, neurotic, low self-esteem, stuttering kid. And as I'm reading about the call of Moses, this is what st stuck out to me then and what sticks out to me now is Moses has all of these objections and all of these questions. And knowing what I know about myself, I assume when Moses says, who am I? Who am I that you would call me? He's wanting God to say, oh, Moses, don't sell yourself short. You're smart. You're good looking. Doggone it, people like you. I mean, that's what I wanted. But God essentially says to Moses, who cares who you are? I am who I am. Of course, Moses comes back. I'm slow of speech. I can't. And for a stuttering kid, the light bulb goes off. Oh, I wonder what that is. Did he stutter? Or was he just not eloquent? Or what does that mean? The Lord says, I made your time. Every objection that Moses has, the Lord answers, not with Moses' qualifications, but with the Lord's qualifications. I will give you power. I will give you these miracles. And so for us, brothers and sisters, who are charged with sharing the gospel, the Lord says, I am who I am. Who you are is irrelevant. If I have called you, I will equip you. I give you this miracle, this sign. I give you the gospel. It is power. It's spiritual power. Take that sign with you wherever you go. Proclaim that sign wherever you are. Everything that qualifies us for gospel ministry comes from God and not from ourselves. If you're looking through the biblical qualifications, Pastor, for elder in the scriptures, if you're a faithful husband, it's because Christ has been a faithful bridegroom to you. If you're a faithful father, it's because God has been a faithful father to you. If you're patient and long-tempered, it's because God has been that way with you. If you are self-controlled, self-disciplined, and gentle, it's because the Spirit has trained you to be that way. If you have a good reputation with outsiders, it's because God has given you favor. If you're able to teach, it's because the Spirit has gifted you to do so. If you're hospitable, it's because Christ has taken up residence in you. If you are knowledgeable and doctrinally intelligent, it's because the Spirit has led you into the truth. If you are not a lover of money, it's because the Lord has shown you the incomparable riches of Christ and you have found your satisfaction there. You didn't qualify yourself as hard as you may have worked to get where you are. It was not you, but the Spirit of God working through you. Paul says to the Corinthians earlier in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The minister of the gospel, which, I mean, just Christian. Every Christian ought to be, in some sense, a minister of the gospel. Is who he is or is who she is in the spirit. Has what he or she has because of the spirit. And does what he or she does in the spirit. And if the spirit of Christ has indwelled you, if you are united to him in faith, you are, as Richard Sibb says, an impregnable person. You are a person who cannot be conquered. Isn't that liberating? The gospel minister, rooted and built up in Christ, sealed and empowered by the Spirit, is in the flesh, nevertheless, a supernatural person. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He loved me and gave himself for me. I died with him. So now I live with him. I'm a supernaturalized person. Such is the confidence we have, the confidence that the Spirit gives us, that we are enveloped in God, that Christ is in us, that Christ is over us, that Christ is around us, that Christ is under us as our foundation, that Christ works through us. We can be totally abandoned to the call of God, to proclaim the gospel to every tongue, tribe, race, and nation, because the Spirit of Christ has secured us. It is said that in A.D. 404, John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, was brought before the emperor of Rome. The emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. Chrysostom allegedly responded, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. <laughs> but I will kill you, said the emperor. No, you cannot. For my life is hid with Christ in God. Said Chrysostom. Well, I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot. For my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there. I will drive you away from your friends, and you will have no one left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Now, that's supernatural thinking. That idea does not come from natural means. To be faced with the threats of death, and for most of us, we won't be faced with the threats of death, but simply embarrassment or conflict or exhaustion or frustration. But to face any of those threats and say, let them do what they will. Let them take even my body. The Lord will give me a new one. Full of glory. Only supernaturalized people can say such a thing. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And because God is God and the gospel is true, our inherent abilities, our aptitude, our achievements are completely irrelevant. The gospel message is supernatural. The gospel ministry is supernatural. The gospel minister is supernatural. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You're alive. Just... Sometimes I just want this to sink in for me. We just go on autopilot with the ministry thing, the Christian thing. I'm alive because of God. Like, right? God. Like, the God has a relationship with me. I'm alive because of God. The one whose name people take in vain, who is real and holy 
who surveys all of the cosmos, that God has made me alive. Let's never forget that Christianity is supernatural. Let's pray. I would pray you would help us to get this as much as we need to for the moment ahead. I thank you that your mercies are new every morning. I certainly wake up with new ideas and striking for me. And so I need you. Every hour I need you, as the song says, Father. We need you to come and show us the deep love you have for us, the grace you have given us in your Son. We need you to discipline us, to help us to repent. We thank you that we have such confidence to do so, knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in your Son. And so we ask that you would press the truth of the gospel deep into our hearts, that you would press it into every corner of the room of our souls, that every waking moment would be bathed in the truth of the gospel. All by your Spirit, and we are grateful for your Spirit, who doesn't seek to the glory for himself, who doesn't seek to draw attention to himself, who, who keeps focusing the light on Christ. We hope to honor him in, in the way that he hopes to honor Christ. And so, as your spirit is God, we ask that you would help us to have our affections tuned to and surrounded by and be enveloped by your triune self. So please send your spirit in a powerful way, Father, that helps us to love your son and cling to him more closely, even as he clings to us eternally. It's in his great name that we pray. Amen.